lunch um, this morning on uh, what's become a bit of tradition here at Open Table, the the year-end review. I can't imagine um, that this tradition is entirely... <laughs> April said she they heard that. The sound system picked it up. Well done. Um, yeah, everybody's jumping in now, said so they heard it. That's good. Um, I can't imagine this tradition is unique to everyone um, or to every church. I know the idea of reviewing the previous year is done all over the place. We do it in music. We do it in entertainment. Now your Spotify at the end of the year tells you everything you listened to that year and what you listened to the most. It's kind of weird sometimes to have. I think my YouTube even did it this year. Um, it is kind of weird to have them tell you this is what your year was like. Um, TV shows even do those retrospective episodes where they play little clips of previous episodes just to kind of remind you some other things that have happened. Um, but it's brought to mind the place that uh, where traditions come from, because um, ours kind of came from a weird place. Uh, ending each year and starting the new year with a sermon review was never really um, part of our plan. Uh, we tend to follow the church calendar, and the church's new year starts with the first week of Advent. Um, so really, this isn't even a church holiday. Um, but two years ago, we were ending um, one of the worst years that many of us had ever experienced. We were closing the year 2020. We'd been through lockdowns and race riots and scary news of murder hornets. I don't know if you guys remember the murder hornets. I don't remember what ever happened with those. Um, but yeah, 2020 was rough, and it seems like as it was ending, we needed to look back and say goodbye and good riddance. Um, and and I think we had a one-week gap between series, and so um, it also kind of fit just to take a week and review, and, and I preached a sermon that I called Hell in the Rearview Mirror. And, uh, and we talked about this moment when Moses and the people of Israel had just left Egyptian slavery. And though they didn't know it, they had a rather long wander in the wilderness ahead of them. And so they were sitting kind of with hell in the rearview mirror and wilderness in the windshield. And they, uh, they stopped at the side of the Red Sea in this kind of frozen moment between two times. And, uh, and they chose to worship. They chose a time of worship in the in-between. Um, and we were excited to say goodbye to 2020 and leave that bad apple in the uh, rearview mirror. And then we got to the end of 2021. <laughs> and we looked back, and that had been a rough year, too. Uh, maybe not in the global pandemic level of bad that 2020 was, but we lost Josiah Mason, and we lost Roger Kelly. Um, and so one year ago, we stood in that transition point between two years. And we looked in the rearview mirror and said, how about we leave the hell of 2021 in the rearview mirror and focus ahead? Let's look out the windshield and embrace 2022. Um, and here we are <laughs> at the end of 2022. And Esther and I are emotionally and physically drained. And we're looking back on 2022 with that dizzy, windblown, racing heart feeling that you get when you step off a roller coaster and you're like, why did I agree to do that? I cannot believe I'm still alive. And yet, just like the roller coaster, even as you are holding on to the earth because you fear you might fall off, um, 
you know at some level you want to ride again. You want to, uh, it was terrifying and exhausting and gut-wrenching, um, but I kind of want to keep riding and know what comes next. Um, well, this morning I settled on a passage that I think highlights that feeling, but before we dive into that text, um, as we consider this kind of annual tradition um, that we've fallen into of looking back to review the previous year's teachings, um, I thought we might look at some crazy traditions from around the world. Um, and so this is La Tamatina from Spain. I don't know how well you can see those pictures on your phone. But every year in August since 1945, people gather in the town of Banuel for the largest tomato fight in the world. <laughs> and so that's weird. Thousands and thousands of people show up to throw tens of thousands of tomatoes at each other. I guess it gets intense um, and messy. So the first day of spring, uh, this is our second one, the first day of spring in Bosnia, an entire town, um, every town in Bosnia, gathers in the Times Square for the festival of, um, and I'm not even going to get close to pronouncing it, so I put it on the thing, however you say that. Um, it means the festival of scrambled eggs. <laughs> and the entire town gathers around the biggest pan you've ever seen, and they scramble thousands of eggs together. They all get um, a, like a stick or like a broomstick or a giant Lego, and everybody helps to scramble the eggs in this giant pan, and then they just eat eggs together. So there are strange traditions. Um, in Denmark, if you... <laughs> this is horrible. If you turn 25 and you are unmarried, not only do you have to face Valentine's Day alone, but you must also endure your friends and family submerging you in a cloud of cinnamon. They basically bury you in cinnamon. I have no idea why. This is a long-standing tradition in Denmark. It's customary of a man or woman turns 25 and is still single. So first they splash you with water so the cinnamon will stick real well, and then you get covered head to toe in cinnamon. So I'm pretty sure the woke police would shut that down around here real fast, like single bashing or something. I don't know what it would be, but, um, but yeah, weird customs. And uh, and this one is great. This is so much better um, than premarital counseling, I think. Um, Polterbend means wedding shower. is a unique tradition in Germany that is traditionally held the day before the wedding, the day before the bride and groom are wed. And it's a big party where friends and family gather at the front of the house and they smash things on the floor. Plates, flower pots, tiles, um, everything that makes a lot of noise and a huge mess, they smash it on the floor. Uh, the only exception, they don't smash mirrors or like window glass, you know, of course. Um, but anything they can throw on the floor and smash, they do it. And it makes this gigantic mess all over the floor. And once the... The uh, dish breaking is done, and here's my favorite part. The bride and groom then work together to clean up the mess. They have to clean it up by themselves. And it is uh, in preparation for their future so that they start out their marriage like working together to clean up messes. It's this super cool symbolic um, thing. It's a tradition that's full of wisdom and experience so that you can like get a year's worth of fights out in one moment and, uh, and clean up messes together. Um, so maybe looking back at a year's worth of teachings um, for one last review isn't that weird of a tradition. So we kicked off 2022 
with our typical identity series um, for the last, I think, five years in a row, six years in a row, we've, we've done this. We've spent January talking about who OpenTable is. Um, and I think we've decided we're going to move that um, to September uh, because we're we are kind of kick off a lot of new things in September, so it seems like a good place to talk about who we are and who we want to be. Um, but uh, we titled this year's The Real Open Table, um, and we leaned into the idea of authenticity. Um, not kind of just being authentic, but learning to accept authenticity. Um, we looked at what it means to accept God on God's terms, not the the God that, uh, that we've kind of uh, made in our own image, but the real God, um, the, the God who presents himself to us in Scripture. Because that's a hard thing. It's a hard thing. We want to shape God to fit us. Um, and most people, if they're honest, most people, especially in the American church, um, the God they serve and the God they worship just happens to agree with and be uh, mostly into the things they agree with and are mostly into. It's, it's shocking how much God tends to look like us, how much he tends to want um, to vote the way we vote and do the, what we do and be against the things we're against. And so um, so we talked about what it means to take God on his terms and say, I don't get to shape God. I have to take him the way he presents himself to us. Sometimes that's awesome. And we find the God that, um, that comforts us. And sometimes that's rough. And we find a God that calls us um, on our garbage. And, uh, and we can't change that. I see you guys jumping in. Um, good to see you guys. Happy New Year. Um, glad you guys are joining us. Um, so we talked about what it means to live with real purpose. To, um, to, uh, to have accept our real um, self and, and even like confront our real self. Uh, and so we started here talking about not only just being real, but making space for real as well. And then we dove into um, a series that we called the Ten Commandments Remixed. Um, I had a lot of fun with this one. This is one of my favorite. Um, we started talking about the oddity of the Tenth Commandment. God commanded us not to covet. Um, and we tried to imagine who the victim of coveting is um, if I have uh, if I have something and you covet it, you wish you had it, you want it. How does that hurt me? It doesn't change my day at all. Um, in fact, why would it even bug God? Um, there seems to be no victim to point to in coveting, um, and if there's no victim, is there really a crime? Um, and then we realize that the victim, when we covet, when I covet, is me. God is protecting me. He's, uh, he's commanded me not to covet because he knows if I spend my life desiring things that I don't have, it will rot my soul. It is not good for me to spend my life looking at other people's stuff and wishing it was mine. It, it completely takes gratitude off the map. And God knows that gratitude um, is good for me. It's good for my soul. It's good for my heart um, to be grateful. And so coveting is a protection God gives this command uh, so that we will stay away from this poison. And, and if the Tenth Commandment was given for my good, and not just because God was giving some arbitrary rule of holiness, or not because he was trying to create a, a moral universe that you could build a society on, but for my good, then maybe all the commands are that way. Uh, maybe they all serve my ultimate good. So we looked at the commands and found that this is the case. 
Um, the law was not given to control us. It was given to benefit us. It's given so that we can live a long and healthy life. And from there we go into our Lent series. We call it Collide. Um, Lent's a season where we come to grips with our humanity. We face our mortality and our sinfulness. And we wander in the wilderness for a bit to prepare our hearts once again for the resurrection of Jesus. Crashing, uh, to come crashing into our lives. And so in 2022, we dove into to that uh, Lenten reality a little bit. We titled the series Collide, and we looked at all the ways that Jesus will crash into our lives um, and just make a mess of things, really. He doesn't just kind of merge into our lives like he's getting on the highway, you know, just kind of smoothly blend in with the life we have. Um, he comes in like a wrecking ball. I was going to sing there, but I don't think I need to give uh, Miley Cyrus any credit in this sermon. But... Um, uh, only instead of kind of tearing us down, he, he ultimately builds us up. Um, but we look at how Jesus collided with our souls and with our culture and with our past and with our purpose and even our core values. And this took us right to Easter. Um, and our Easter message this year we titled Cancel. Um, we looked at, uh, we played around with cancel culture a little bit and, and this weird tendency we have right now to try and cancel everything that offends us. And we mostly looked at Satan's attempt to um, to cancel our Savior um, and all that our Savior promised to bring to the earth. And instead, because of Easter, Jesus not only canceled Satan, but death and sickness and suffering and loneliness and everything that wasn't supposed to be part of our story. Jesus ultimately canceled um, that, and uh, and that's the beauty of the of the Easter. Um, story, and this leads us to our long summer series, and that I had an absolute blast um, preaching. We titled it "Welcome to the Kingdom," um, and after that kind of long Lent series, um, looking at the ways that Jesus can kind of make an absolute mess of us when He collides with us, we decided to look at the beauty and benefit of living in the Kingdom of God. Um, this was originally supposed to be a seven-week series. Um, and so we started looking at the seven things that every kingdom has. I just pulled up an encyclopedia page and it was like, this is what it takes to have a kingdom. And, uh, and there were seven of them, which is kind of a great number when you're wanting to preach a sermon. And seven weeks felt about right. So we dove into the seven-week series um, looking at what it means to be a kingdom. And then we focused mostly on those seven things in light of God's kingdom and what God... Um, uh, what it means to be in God's upside-down kingdom. And we look at those things um, and what God's kingdom looked like and the ways that it turns the ideas of kingdom on its head. Uh, we decided to stay in that series for a while. I think we did 22, 23 weeks, something. Um, but we knew that we were not done talking about the kingdom of God, so we just settled in for the summer. And I prayed each week about what God wanted to talk to us about. It was really fun diving into what he had to say to us each week. Um, normally I preach series that I kind of outline ahead of time. I had no outline going into our summer series, and it was a blast to just seek God every week and, and, and just ask Him what He wanted to say to us. So 22, 23, 24 weeks of Welcome to the Kingdom, I can't remember. But, uh, but we followed that up with a series that we called Setting the Table Differently. This was kind of our, our uh, identity series that we dove into for... Um, for September, and I think we may move the identity series there from now on. But um, but we talked about the way that our culture is changing, and the way that's impacting the church, 
um, and the way that uh, we need to learn to set the table differently if we want to stay impactful for the kingdom of God. If we want to advance the kingdom in this new context, we may have to set the table differently, find new ways to connect, new ways to... And we talked about some of the, the horrible statistics where if you go back um, about 50 years, um, the, the, uh, and when you look at what they call regular church attendance, um, around 80% of the population was a regular church attender. If you come forward to today, that number is down to 38 to 40 percent, um, and that's scary to go from from that big of a drop, about half. But what's even more terrifying is what it took to qualify as a regular church attender when that poll was done in the 70s. Um, was somebody who attends church two to three times a week um, was a regular church attender, and because that put the modern day number somewhere around zero. Um, they changed the definition based on the new cultural context. And so today, you're a regular church attender if you attend church one to two times a month. Um, and, and still, at one to two times a month, the number is only around 38%. So our culture is changing. People aren't getting together anymore. People aren't um, connecting the same way anymore. And, and we can't just go... Um, well, the world is going to go to hell in a handbasket. What can you do? We have to find a way to set the table differently, find a way to reach people in this new context. Um, and it's ironic that I'm talking about this as I'm looking into a camera. Um, honestly, back in 2020, when I first started going um, online for anything, it, it was the most uncomfortable um, thing I think I'd ever done. I've never intended to be a camera person. Um, and it's bizarre that I can sit here and look at a, a funny little circle with a red light next to it and feel like I'm talking to you. That's how much the world has changed. I actually feel like I'm talking to my people. I glance down to, to see who's here. And, and the world has changed and is continuing to change. And, and we can't just hold on to the way we've always done things um, and expect uh, to make a difference. And so we have to... Uh, uh, we have to... Uh, set the table differently. And so we, uh, as an object lesson, we messed with the chairs and we talked a little bit through the sermons um, and it was all a really fun exercise. But I think the thing that stood out to me the most um, is that you could probably frame all of church history as a huge game of the church weathering a million cultural changes and always learning to set the table differently. When you look at how much the church has changed and moved through empires and been here you know, when empires that they thought would last forever fell, and yet the church continued on. When, when wars that felt like they were going to tear the world apart happened, um, the church made it through and, and helped to put the world back together. So the, the, all of church history feels like a game of learning to set the table differently. When everything changes, the church figures out a new way um, to reach people and advance the kingdom of God. And so... Um, so it's kind of fun to be sitting at one of those points in history and go, how are we going to do it? How are we going to do what the church has always done and, and set the table differently? Um, so after we talked about that, um, we dove into our annual Saint series. And I will tell you, I'm still having trouble shaking the impact that that series had on me. Um, my faith is still kind of rumbling with potential after studying the four saints we covered this year. Um, and actually, I, I, uh, uh, I only studied three of the four. Um, because my wife, I don't know if you remember, preached on the 7,000 followers of God who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And she crushed it. Um, she was awesome. 
But studying those 7,000 and George Mueller and his orphanages and Michael Faraday and his faith in the midst of um, a gigantic movement away from God um, and Francis Anita Schaefer and Labrie and the way they um, embraced people really did change me um, and make me want to dig in even deeper um, in terms of what we should be, should be believing God for um, and ways we should be that God should be transforming our lives. Um, I, I don't think, this is something Astro and I have been leaning into lately, I don't think you should be able to, to, to serve Jesus and it not change you, and it not transform you. I believe the, um, the presence of, of Jesus in our life should be transformative. It should, it should wreck us and, and then put us back together and make us different people. So, um, so that, that wrapped up our same series, and then just a month ago or so, we wrapped up that series and celebrated the Christian New Year, the Christian calendar New Year, as we started Advent. And we spent the last four weeks listening to the music in the background of our culture, the score or the soundtrack that plays in every scene of this movie we call our lives. But even more than just the listening, we set out to change the song. Um, we recognize that we have the ability to pick a better message for our souls and sing along to that. Um, so for four weeks, we sang along to the Advent virtues as we waited for the arrival of our Savior. Um, and then a week ago, we added some mistletoe and some ornaments and uh, to our score, and we celebrated with the arrival of our Savior um, with a look at his mom's famous song, The Magnificent, um, in a beautiful night of music and love. Um, which brings us here to the brink of another year um, where I feel God spoke some amazing things to us and we grew closer to one another um, and God brought some folks into our community that have quickly become incredibly close to our group of ragamuffins. Um, but no matter how great things, how many great things God has done, we still stand here at the end of another year wobbling need and shaken, wondering why we keep getting on this roller coaster. Um, and so I dove into the scripture to find solace this week. Checking on the old fam. Um, or at least commiseration. <laughs> at least something in the text that, that explained that what I'm going through and what we're going through is not weird. And I found a similar moment in the story of God. And I thought we would look at it this morning as we wrap up one year and cautiously like dip our toes into the next. So I'm going to read from the book of Joshua right at the beginning of the book. This is after the death of Moses, the Lord's servant. The Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, and said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, the time has come for you to lead those people, lead these people, the Israelites, across the Jordan River into the land I'm giving them. I promise you what I promised Moses. Wherever you set your foot, you will be on land I've given you. From the Negev in the wilderness in the south to the Lebanon mountains in the north, from the Euphrates River in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, including all the land of the Hittites, no one will be able to stand against you as long as you live, for I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you or abandon you. Be strong and courageous, for you are the one who will lead these people to possess the land I swore to their ancestors. I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or the left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. This is 
the word of the Lord. You know, I've read or listened to, listen, listen to the scripture, um, this passage literally over a hundred times. Um, and every single time I read it, it was this like awesome battle cry. Um, like this speech that Mickey might give Rocky in the corner while Clubber Lang is looking mean and intimidating on the other side of the ring. Like, you can do this. Don't be afraid. You, you're, I'm going with you. The people are counting on you. You got this. Like, I've always read it like this, this rally cry. But it wasn't until this time through that I even paused for a second to think about what Joshua was feeling. Moses, his mentor, his life's greatest teacher, the guy who delivered him from slavery for crying out loud, his best friend was gone. And so, so let me paint a, a short picture here. This is, this is from Exodus. It says, So Moses and his assistant Joshua set out, and Moses climbed up the mountain of God. Moses told the elders, Stay here and wait for us until we come back. Moses and her are here with you. If anyone has a dispute while I'm gone, consult with them. If Moses goes on a journey to get closer to God, guess who's with him? Joshua. Aaron, Moses' ministry partner, stays behind, but Joshua is right there. And we often talk about the golden calf while Moses is up in the mountain. This is on a different trip up in the mountain. While Moses is up in the mountain on his longest trip to, to be with God, while he was receiving the stone tablets with God's handwriting on them, Aaron is turning everyone's jewelry into a god that they can worship. And everyone is partying and drinking and really whooping it up. And Moses comes down and freaks out because he, he really hasn't been gone long enough for everyone to completely abandon God and worship a golden calf. So Moses comes down and catches the people, and he gets angry, and he breaks the tablets, and he, and he punishes a bunch of, uh, of people. And we're used to this story. We talk about this story quite a bit. But you know what? I've never caught in all my time listening to it what we leave out. It says this, when Joshua heard the boisterous noise of the people shouting below them, he exclaimed to Moses, it sounds like a war in the camp. But Moses replied, no, it's not a shout of victory, nor a wailing defeat. I hear the sound of celebration. When, when you play that scene out in your head of Moses coming down the mountain, do you ever imagine Moses isn't alone? He's walking with somebody next to him. This is a, this is a twosome. Moses is coming down the mountain with the tablets and Joshua is, is with him. And Joshua says, hey, what's that sound? Moses is not alone in the mountain. Now this tells me two things. Moses really depended on Joshua. And number two, Joshua felt completely outside the life of the camp. He was a loner without Moses. While the entire camp, including Aaron, is going one direction, Joshua is not there. He's not part of that life. Which tells me Moses was Joshua's life. And to make that moment even more frustrating, there's no way that Moses' death makes any sense to Joshua. After everything the Israelites have done to, to offend God, all the times they've cursed God, all the times they've cried out to God, Moses hits a rock instead of speaking to it. And for that, Moses, who seems healthy at the time and vigorous still, even though he's old, had to go to the mountain and die. The good guy dies and the evil people get to live. How does that make any sense? But at the beginning of, of the book of Joshua, Moses is now dead. Joshua's companion for 40 years is gone. And realizing this completely changed the tone of the passage for me this year. 
After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses, Moses' assistant. He said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, the time has come for you to lead the people, the Israelites, across the Jordan River into the land I'm giving them. And this is a terror, this is the terrible reality of loss. I've spoken of this in here before. The weirdest and maybe cruelest thing about suffering great loss is the fact that life keeps going. It seems impossible, but the story keeps going. When my two best friends and my mentor all died in the in the same car wreck, I never really questioned God or his existence. I was actually surprised that those feelings never came up, but they didn't. I was angry with God, but never doubted him for a minute. I didn't really wrestle with the concept of injustice and how it wasn't fair that, that these guys who love God and serve him with all their hearts should die. I didn't really struggle with that because the apostles died. And the apostles died at a time when the church really needed them, and the church was young and, 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 uh, and was already struggling and, and fighting amongst itself and having issues. And, and it doesn't make any sense to pull the, the leadership out in horrible deaths, and yet it happened. They were incredibly valuable to the church at large, and when their time came, no, I don't have that. When their time came, it came, and I don't, I don't have a problem with that. The part I struggled with most was the simple fact that my mortgage still needed to be paid. Diapers still needed to be changed. Traffic was still bad in the morning. In other words, the cruelest part of my whole world falling apart was the fact that the world kept moving like nothing happened. It didn't seem possible. And, and you know, Joshua had to feel that. Could I just stop for a minute and breathe? My mentor and friend just passed away and I could use a second to process. But Joshua didn't get a second. In fact, he's called to take over Moses' job immediately. He has work to do immediately. And so assuming Joshua was human and he was hurting as any human would be, and assuming Joshua is frustrated with the circumstances around Moses' death as any human would be, then let's assume that what God was doing was good for Joshua and the people. And let's see what we can learn from it. The first thing um, that people needed the first thing that jumps out at me is that people needed for Joshua to keep moving. Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, the time has come for you to lead these people. This might seem cruel, but Moses had been through hell for these people. And I'm pretty sure that Moses would have been very upset if all that effort went to nothing because there was no one to take over. Joshua has to keep moving, not just for the people, not even really just for God. Joshua has to keep moving because he, he nullifies the life of the person he loved so much if he doesn't finish the work. Brett spoke eloquently at the funeral about Lena's kindness and how that torch, that mantle is now on him to carry. I think Joshua would get that sentiment. In fact, God even tells Joshua how to do this. This is the second thing that jumps out at me from this passage. He says, study the book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so that you are sure to obey everything written in it. 
Only then will you prosper and succeed in all that you do. So, so many people run from the Word of God when they land where Joshua is. They get frustrated. They chalk up the whole thing as a bad gig. And God is warning Joshua that even with his grief and even with his frustration, stay in the Word. It's the only way through. And the third thing to draw our attention to is this. Be strong and courageous. Several times in this passage, three or four times in this passage, over and over, God tells Joshua to be strong and have courage. This tells me a couple things. First, the temptation to do the opposite, to fear, to grow weak, must have been there. God doesn't command us to have courage if there's not a valid reason. Joshua was at risk. God knew it. God knew he had to bolster him. This also tells me that Joshua, after 40 years of living with Moses and working with Moses and serving Moses as close to God as you could get unless you're Moses, even Joshua, with all that experience, wasn't above messing up this transition. And he needed God to tell him over and over again, be strong and courageous. You can do this. You've got this. And if Joshua needed a pep talk, I don't feel so bad. For struggling a little myself. But the most important thing that this passage teaches me at a moment like this is this. I promise you what I promised Moses. I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you or abandon you. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God never intended Joshua to be alone. And Moses was not Joshua's God. Joshua loved Moses. Joshua relied on Moses. And in a lot of ways, desperately needed Moses. But in all the ways that truly mattered, Moses was doing just fine. And Joshua not only had everything he needed to move forward, but Joshua actually had everything that made Moses the kind of man that was worth following in the first place. The only thing that made Moses worth clinging to was his relationship with God. And now Joshua is being offered that same thing. I've come to believe that the weird cruelty that the world keeps moving, even when we lose someone we should never have lost, is actually a hidden lesson. That cruelty is actually teaching us something. It's actually a way of learning that the story was really never about that person in the first place. It was much bigger than them, just like it's much bigger than us. Chances are they already knew that, and we're the ones that need to learn it. The world keeps turning, life keeps moving, the story keeps rolling on, because all those things are actually about God, and God cannot be stopped. So this passage that I've always considered a fun little pep talk before the country is thrown into a long stretch of blessings and battles, inheritance and insecurities, promises kept on God's side and promises broken on theirs, I now see this passage having a little bit more to do with what lays in the past as it does what lays in the future. In other words, this is a New Year's passage. And here's the deal. It would be easy to listen to this message and assume that I'm preaching to Brett or preaching to Lena's close friends or family. But to be honest, I'm talking to our whole church. We've had many people in our church suffer losses in the past couple of years. 
some of them were high profile and we had to pause corporately and kind of regain our balance a little bit. And some have flown under the radar and affected some of our individuals very deeply, even if the entire church wasn't aware of it. But as a whole, our church has suffered an inordinate amount of pain and grief in the past couple of years. It would be really easy to grow discouraged and despondent or to even be tempted to give up. But I'm here to tell you that that is not an option, Open Table Community Church. I say again, can you imagine how furious Moses would have been if after all he had gone through, when the time for Joshua to pick up the baton, Joshua had chosen to give up on the whole church thing and cash it in because of his grief. No, Open Table, we've been pretty beat up over the past few years. And the fact that I'm basically titling this message Hell in the Rearview Mirror 3 is not a great sign. And don't get me wrong, there have been some amazing moments. There have been some, some absolutely beautiful relationships made and miracles have happened. But we've had more than our share of wilderness and pain. But the only logical answer to that situation is to be strong and courageous and to lead these people across the Jordan into the land that was promised to them. So how do we respond to this? I have to be honest, I've been a mess over the past month or so. Really longer than that as I watched Lena get sicker and sicker. And I really believed that God was going to answer our prayers and heal Lena's body here on earth and leave us with her for a while. And it hurts like hell that it didn't turn out that way. But even as, I, as convinced I was that an earthly miracle was coming, I don't really wrestle with all the why questions. I've, I've given up that battle. Well, that's not exactly true. There's one why that still gnaws at me. It's been pretty big in my heart for the past couple of months. Why love people? Why put your heart out there if you know? That's not right. Not if you know. When you know that it's going to be broken. Because believe me, I feel the temptation to retreat into my theology and my world of thoughts and ideas and happily invite people up into that space where we can debate and argue and deal with facts and quotes and concepts. And then when they leave, I can just invite somebody else up into that space and do it all over again. Why invite them into your heart? Why fall in love with people? and expose yourself to so much pain. I know plenty of pastors who don't really fall in love with people. They don't fall in love with everyone who walks in the doors of the church. And please don't think for a second that that insulation isn't tempting. If I'm honest, I want so bad some days to close the door and just passed her from my head. I am not above that temptation. So why love? 
Why risk your whole heart like that? The only answer I have is that that's the Jesus way. I wish I had a better answer. I wish I could promise you that there's a great enlightenment on the other side of that much pain. I wish I could promise you a bucket of gold at the end of every rainbow. But I can't. But I do know this. Jesus could have played it safe. He existed in the safest place in the universe. Perfect love, perfect relationship, perfect environment. Zero need to risk the mess of relationship with you and me. He was doing perfectly. But Jesus opened up his chest and exposed his heart and and descended into our mess for no other reason than to love us. And he was hurt. That's what the cross is all about. about how bad it hurts to love someone. And I wish that I could embrace an easy little set of rules and convince myself that trying to be like Jesus means that I don't drink, smoke, cuss, gamble, or dance. But if I'm honest, that list is pretty easy. Plenty of people do that without being in love with Jesus. Love is hard. Love is really hard. If I want to be like Jesus, if you want to be like Jesus, that's the only way. Love. Not just being nice. But love. The kind that costs you something. The kind that has the potential to leave you where Joshua was. that leaves you feeling unbelievably vulnerable. The kind that's risky. I really do believe this is what it means to follow Jesus. So the way that I would love to respond to this message is to resist the urge to run. Resist the urge to numb. Resist the urge to check out and willingly, knowingly, voluntarily expose yourself to the risk of pain that comes from loving people. Make a good old-fashioned New Year's resolution that you're going to be strong and courageous and walk into the promises of God. And you're going to do it with your heart on your sleeve, loving people, because that's what Jesus does. 